I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Do the best you can for yourself. P.T. Barnum was an inveterate letter writer who had no trouble filling sheet after sheet when writing to certain correspondents. So his 12-page letter to his uncle Allenson Taylor, which we explored in the previous episode, is not altogether surprising. This time, we'll explore a related long letter, though only a mere seven pages. It was written to Fortis Hitchcock, Barnum's manager of the American Museum. Dated January 25, 1846, and written in Cupar, a parish of Fife, Scotland, Barnum began by informing Hitchcock that his letter to Taylor was enclosed and that he wished Hitchcock to read it. He told Hitchcock to then seal it up and mail it so that Taylor would realize that he, Hitchcock, was aware of the contents. Barnum's strategy was to avoid misunderstandings and avert possible disagreements between the two men, who apparently were not compatible personalities. Hitchcock seemed to have a hard time tolerating Taylor's crusty manner and entrenched attitudes. So Barnum reasoned, Indeed, Taylor may as well know that you have read it by my desire. Then a full and mutual understanding will be maintained. Barnum was counting on their cooperation to make a success of the recently acquired Baltimore Museum, Barnum being an equal partner with Taylor, which would provide another venue for new attractions at his American Museum. The profitability of Barnum's often pricey purchases in Europe would thereby be extended since they could be sent to Baltimore after a good run in New York City. Barnum also wanted to ensure that Hitchcock, as his financial manager, would know and fully understand his wishes, and the letter to Taylor would explain these. He was sensitive to Hitchcock's compulsion to carry out directives precisely as Barnum wished, whether family or business-related, at times being a bit too scrupulous in Barnum's view. The weeks between letters sent and replies received and letters crossing in the mail must have caused Hitchcock a great deal of worry, because Barnum hastened to assure him You have before this learned by another letter that all your anxiety about having missed my views in purchasing the Baltimore Museum was groundless. I could not have foreseen that such a chance could have occurred, but since it did occur, I am rejoiced that you took advantage of it. 
Curiously, Barnum responded a bit doubtfully to Hitchcock's statement that if he, Barnum, regretted Hitchcock's decision to pay $5,000 toward the Baltimore Museum purchase, he himself would put up the money and become Taylor's partner. Barnum probed Hitchcock's intent, saying, If you mean by that that you prefer to give up your present situation and take half of the Baltimore Museum, I certainly can make no objection, provided Mr. Taylor and yourself agree to that plan. I by no means wish to tie you down to the American Museum when a chance offers for your bettering yourself. Considering Hitchcock and Taylor's uneasy relationship, the idea of a partnership hardly seems likely. Yet, Barnum continued, If you think that such a chance is at hand by your buying the Baltimore Museum with Taylor, I wish you to embrace it, for I wish you always to consider that the world is open to you to do the best you can for yourself, without feeling under the least restraint on my account. Barnum had helped, perhaps even rescued, Hitchcock, whose former career was as a Universalist minister. Something had gone awry. Occasional remarks suggest Hitchcock may have had a nervous breakdown. But Barnum stood by him and wanted to see his friend succeed. The two men must have had many soul-bearing conversations in the past. Barnum needed a responsible, trustworthy museum manager while he was on his European tour. After all, Barnum was only two years into his proprietorship at the time he set sail, and felt Hitchcock could be employed in that capacity but he did not wish Hitchcock to feel under any long-term obligation. He advised him, Understand me, I do not believe you desire to change your present situation. Still, it may be that looking on the Baltimore Museum as a certainty and your present situation as something of an uncertainty, the former might be preferred by you. And if so, I say with all my heart and soul, take it, for I will never wittingly be in the way of your advancement and prosperity. While Barnum appears genuine in not wanting Hitchcock to feel tied to the job, he also had his own business interests to consider. Clearly, he realized that both for the sake of his museum and Hitchcock's own mental health, it would not be possible to have his manager's attention split between Baltimore and New York. He emphasized, It would be impossible for you to devote your whole time and attention to the American Museum if you was proprietor of the Baltimore Museum. In fact, in the latter event, your personal attendance would be required in Baltimore. Again, I calculate that that head of yours would crack and snap worse than it ever did before, if you got stuck with the management and ownership of two museums. It would therefore be to both our interests to have you abandon the old American to her fate, if you desire to have half of the Baltimore. The two men were close friends and Barnum wished to keep their personal relationship strong and even expand it to their families. He knew of Hitchcock's ongoing concern for his wife's painful illness, possibly trigeminal neuralgia, and replied to him, I am glad your wife's face is cured, and then commented on his own health. I am well once more, except in heart. I am dreadfully homesick, so much so that I cannot sleep nights. So many women have died this year of childbirth that my wife is excessively frightened, and so am I. Charity was nearing the end of her eighth month of pregnancy at that point. Barnum also inquired about the young man from England, trained in saddle-making, whom he wanted to assist in finding employment in America. This young man, unnamed, was the son of a Mr. and Mrs. Collins in London. Barnum had mentioned them as friends of his and that this was a favor he was returning. 
but a brief clue in one letter indicates there was more to the relationship. Mrs. Collins was a sister-in-law. We now learn from this January letter to Hitchcock that Barnum's failure to identify the young man by name led to confusion, undoubtedly when someone from the museum was sent to meet him disembarking from the ship in December. You have probably found ere this that young Collins the Englishman is not named Collins. It was my mistake, that being the name of his stepfather and mother, who is married to her second husband. I hope the young chap is at work and prospering. If by no possibility he can get any work, you or Taylor must try to give him something to do. In November of 1845, Barnum had appealed to his half-brother in Bridgeport to help find the young man a job at his trade if he did not succeed in finding work in New York. Barnum's next comment seems to suggest that Englishman Professor Swift, whom he employed at the American Museum, might train the young man for museum work if finding employment as a saddle maker hadn't worked out. Swift might and ought to instruct some person in making gas and showing dissolving views so that he could do it in Baltimore Museum. This tactic would support Barnum's plan to offer more shows of the popular dissolving views, and he intended to have additional glass slides made while in England. He thanked Hitchcock for sending him pictures, which would be given to artists to create slides for use with the special lantern. Aware that audiences might react negatively to seeing an idealized view of a familiar place when the reality was quite different, Barnum noted, These views you have sent me are truly splendid and I may have some of them painted. But the New York Park and other familiar scenes would look so much better in pictures than they do in reality that I fear the people would lose their admiration of the other views, foreign, as they would think that they all looked better through the lantern than in reality. If I had the revolutionary land and water battle pieces, that objection could not apply, for the people do not know how the battles did look. However, Barnum's next request suggests that improvements had recently been made to the park. Can you send me for dissolving views a good picture of the park as it now is, with fountain, etc.? He had also come up with an exciting idea to create a set of views depicting the American Museum transitioning from day to night. Dissolving views typically showed a gradual transformation in a scene from dawn to dusk or vice versa the change in light making the transformation more believable as well as dramatic. Thinking about the success of the brilliant Drummond light atop the American Museum, Barnum asked Hitchcock, Could you not have a good picture drawn, right size of the American Museum, and have me get it painted with the change, first showing it in daytime, then light it up with the big lantern on the top? It would not be bad. As far as augmenting the museum's bread and butter in daily ticket sales, Barnum was still hoping Hitchcock would reach out to the local Sunday schools, promoting the museum's views of Jerusalem and other places of religious significance. These were to be presented with narration, thus having some educational value to the students. A parallel goal in this plan was to sway the opinions of those who still doubted the moral character of Barnum's museum. He was especially concerned about income during the dull winter season, and along with getting Sunday school scholars and teachers in the door, he suggested, Keep trying some cheap gag to get out city people during the winter. At all other times, we can do without them. Barnum also gave Hitchcock an update on the huge paintings he'd had copied, Giraudet's The Deluge and Vernet's Cain and His Family. He was tempted to have another very large and splendid painting copied, 
this one depicting Generals Washington and Lafayette meeting on horseback and surrounded by the army, so he was told. Though the other copies had cost him $200 each, this would be considerably more at $500 to $600. Barnum was equally intent on another type of attraction, bringing human marvels of nature to the American Museum, and so he was thinking ahead. It is notable that in some cases Barnum or his agent approached such an individual or parent or guardian about exhibiting seriously for the first time. But in other cases, and perhaps this was the majority of cases, the individual was already exhibiting him or herself, and Barnum thought he could attract the person to work for him under a more lucrative contract. The fat children mentioned in episode 26 seem to have done at least a modest amount of exhibiting, but only by doing so on the streets of Glasgow. Barnum was trying to find a way for the mother and her several children to keep a roof over their heads until April, when they could safely make the transatlantic crossing to New York. However, he did not want the boys to be exhibited during that time. The mother was anxious for the better opportunity Barnum had offered, and was ready to go as soon as possible, but Barnum felt the delay until spring was necessary for their safety. In some respects, he seemed doubtful about having made the offer. As he put it, the two fat brothers were not quite so large as I should have wished, but he felt sorry for the mother and her four children, and had offered her a year-long contract. A very different situation is described in the case of an exceptionally tall man who, it was reported, was already making plenty of money. Barnum told Hitchcock, There is a giant in England named Hale, Bennett saw him, I have not, who is universally pronounced the largest and finest giant in the world. It is said that he could not be hired for America short of $50 per week, as he is earning that now on his own account. Would it do to hire him for that for a year? The story may have been exaggerated. Nonetheless, it is of interest. In 1848, one Robert Hales did come to America to work for Barnum for a couple of years. To be clear, he was not Hale, the famous English giant, nicknamed after a village near Liverpool where he was born. That man, John Middleton, had lived centuries before from 1578 to 1623. Robert Hales, with an S, was born in 1820 in a village in Norfolk. His parents and eight siblings were all exceptionally tall people, and as an adult, Robert stood at seven feet eight inches. At the time Barnum learned of Hales, the giant man was traveling around in a yellow caravan exhibiting at fairs, and had also teamed up with one of his tall sisters and her husband. Hales had taken up the itinerant life after being discharged from the Royal Navy due to his large size. He had joined at age 13 and was discharged at 17. In 1840, he met Queen Victoria, who commented on his resemblance to King George IV, and it is very likely that notable audience with the Queen had helped launch his fame in England. In America, Barnum billed him as the Norfolk Giant. Hales also posed as the husband of Eliza Simpson, the pair being billed as a husband and wife Quaker giants. Hales returned to England around 1850, where he died in 1863. Finally, I expect it's safe to say all of us are curious to know what Barnum really thought about other people, and this letter to Hitchcock offers a couple of biting comments about associates he had mentioned previously. One was the artist George Catlin, who brought Native Americans to Europe to display in conjunction with his portraits of Native American people, 
and to perform for royalty. Barnum had become acquainted with Catlin in England in 1844, and he wrote to him in the fall of 1845 to suggest they might work together, appearing to think well of him at that time. In fact, the Barnum and Catlin families had spent time socializing together, and in the summer of 1845, Barnum was obviously shocked and saddened to learn that Catlin's wife had died, leaving him with the care of their young children. But in this letter, Barnum's opinion of the man is stunningly changed. He told Hitchcock, Catlin is not the man he was. I discharged him for bad behavior. He is the most unprincipled whoremaster living. Don't have him about the museum. The last comment suggests Catlin had returned, or might soon return, to the United States. The other business associate Barnum did not like was a man by the name of Charles J. Rogers, an English circus equestrian of renown who had gone to America. Barnum had already written him off as a windbag when mentioning him to Moses Kimball, his showman friend in Boston. In the January letter to Hitchcock, Barnum offered a more complex view of how to handle their association with Rogers. Rogers is an ass, a man of some talent but all gab, a braggadocia and a drunkard. His wife is a fine woman, daughter of Wilmer of Liverpool, and on her account only would I wish you to receive Rogers at all. She is a worthy lady, and by pleasing her, her father will always help us in the Wilmer and Smith's European times. Another example of Barnum serving his own interests while also doing right by others. Some years later, he would call this profitable philanthropy. Next time, we'll learn about creating the famous Happy Family Exhibition of Birds and Beasts, as Barnum shares the secrets he has learned with Hitchcock and asks him to get the project underway. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. Now, let's dive into the next segment. The secret has cost me much trouble. The happy family of birds and beasts was among P.T. Barnum's most popular and long-running exhibitions at the American Museum in New York. Though the assembled collection of animals was a mix of prey and predators, large and small, the public was amazed by their apparent harmony, living, as it were, all together in one cage. The exhibition was so well known that Happy Family became a kind of shorthand to describe situations in which enemies who were forced together managed to cooperate or maintain some level of peace. Even as august a body as President Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, was facetiously referred to as the Happy Family, due to the intense rivalries and vehement disagreements among that powerful group of men. Barnum's letter of January 25, 1846, to his museum manager Fortis Hitchcock, proudly reveals what he learned in England about developing and maintaining a Happy Family exhibition. His goal was to replicate the traveling exhibition of John Austin, an Englishman who for years had successfully trained and shown a fantastic variety of mammals and birds living together, to the wonder of his audiences. Though mortal enemies by nature, the animals seemed docile and did not harm or kill one another. Barnum had either seen Austin's displays, Austin usually exhibited near the Waterloo and Southwark bridges in London, or had heard enough intriguing reports to pique his interest in the attraction. He confided to Hitchcock, 
I have learned a secret, which you must entrust only to Guillaudot. That is, Monsieur Guillaudot, the museum's naturalist and taxidermist. Or some other one person bound to secrecy. And then by going carefully to work, an outlay of $100 to $150 will bring us thousands. You remember the happy family of birds and beasts, etc., all in one cage, which you have a picture of, and of which I have long ago written you. While Barnum boldly proclaimed he had learned the secret of getting up such a family, and it is just nothing at all, the information he presented Hitchcock was probably more optimistic than realistic in terms of the time, skill, and patience required. Ultimately, Barnum did have to hire a full-time keeper for his Happy Family exhibition, and he was determined to make the investment pay off, noting, The secret has cost me much trouble and some money, but I hope to make a good dodge of it by sending them about the country one of these days. His reveal of the secret began by offering Hitchcock guidance on constructing the cage, but later in the letter considered that Hitchcock or Guillaudot would be wise to decide where it was to be placed before having the cage built. In that way, it could be made to fit the space and lined with zinc or tin. Better done once to specifications than making it any size and then having to alter it, he reasoned. He also had an idea of where it should be placed and noted, before beginning to create your happy family, it might be better for you to make up your minds where the cage should be placed in the museum. It would be better to put it up high at the east end of the Cosmorama room, where the reflector now is, and generally to keep the window in the roof of the museum open to let off the smell, for however clean you may keep them, there will always be a little smell about them. According to the 1850 Illustrated Catalog and Guidebook to Barnum's American Museum, the Happy Family was located in the upper story of the building in the 7th Saloon, in case number 884. Barnum recommended that the cage should be made by getting a wood box or case, say four feet high, two or three feet deep, and four or six feet long. Line it all with tin or zinc so that rats cannot gnaw it out, and let the front be a wire grating coarse enough for people to look through, but fine enough to keep your animals from escaping. Of course, have crossbars, etc., for the birds to rest on. Once this was accomplished, his instructions for creating the happy family were offered much like a recipe. First, put into the cage a couple of cats. Feed them well four times a day, at regular hours with good food, and after three days they will feel at home. Then, put into the cage three or four rats. Ten to one, the cats do not touch them at all. Still, it is best to keep up a watch first few days, and if the cats attempt to touch the rats, punish them slightly, and for greater safety, it is well to take out the cats for the two first nights. Feed rats and cats at the same time, four times a day. After three more days, introduce a guinea pig or two, also a hen and rooster. Then every two or three days, add a bird or animal, no matter what, for by this time a feeling of clanship and self-dependence is established and will continue so that whatever bird or animal is afterwards introduced, no other animal will attempt to touch it. Or if it should, all the rest will pounce upon him and take the part of the newcomer. In two or three weeks, you thus have a happy family, and the more different birds and animals you introduce, the better. Say doves, hawks, parrots, owls, squirrels, rabbits, fox, peacock, etc., 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 etc. Barnum also offered a few tips though it turned out this warning not to include a monkey went unheeded. He advised, It is better not to introduce a monkey, 
for they are mischievous devils, always pulling out the feathers of the birds, etc. If you introduce one, he should always be taken out of the cage at night, also the fox. He also noted that key to the success was always to have them fed regularly and not overfed. Let their food be good and always have the utmost regard be paid to cleanliness. Barnum was so confident that a happy family could be properly assembled in a short time, he advised making another for Allenson Taylor's Baltimore Museum just as soon as the American Museum had promoted theirs and had visitors flocking to see it. His main concern, it seems, was that the method remain a guarded secret. Even his friend in Boston, Moses Kimball, was not to be let in on it. Barnum particularly cautioned Hitchcock, Let your experiments in getting up the family be strictly private. Don't let Davidson understand it. And when you have made up a decent collection, then come out and advertise it strong, as having been engaged by me in England, that it will remain a short time only, etc. And as it is so truly new in America, and withal so astonishing, it must make thousands, and get puffs from the whole press. Let it be generally understood that the manner of taming animals and birds of such contrary natures is a great secret, possessed only by the persons who accompanied them from England, and make just as much noise as possible out of it. When you get the thing under full blast, then commence another for Taylor, to be charged to Baltimore Museum, and so go ahead. Although Barnum ordered that the exhibition not be brought out till it is perfect, that is to say, till the inmates of the cage are thoroughly reconciled, which will be almost immediately, he noted that it need not start off with a large assortment of animals. You can continually keep adding to it. In fact, he recommended writing to Moses Kimball and other persons in town and country to have them pick up for you live owls, hawks, etc. And of course, you can easily pick up doves, parrots, chickens, rats, mice, cats, a little dog, and squirrels. In acquiring the owls and hawks, however, Hitchcock should be certain that neither Kimball nor anyone else learned what they were intended for. He also suggested other animals that would add interest to the mix, but like monkeys, had their drawbacks. A raccoon is a good animal to introduce, but he must be taken out at night. A weasel is also good, but such devils must be taken out at night. The public, however, must suppose that they always rest together night and day. When you once get the ice broke, they are domesticated, and all are as docile as lambs, and make a very curious and extraordinary exhibition. With enthusiasm and confidence, Barnum claimed, John Austin, the original happy family man, has made a heap of money by it. He has been before the queen, and cut quite a figure here. Guillaudot and you can cut quite as much of one in the American Museum, so go ahead. Unsurprisingly, the heap of money Austin earned was exaggerated, or temporary at best. He had to support himself as a carpenter while exhibiting his happy family on the side. Whether the American Museum staff achieved the level of success Barnum anticipated is not clear. His do-it-yourself approach might have worked initially, but then failed, needing the attention of a person skilled with live animals. No mention of the Happy Family Exhibition is made in the museum's 1849 guidebook, Sights and Wonders of New York, but the catalog and guidebook for the following year describes it as a miscellaneous collection of beasts and birds, upwards of sixty in number, contentedly playing and frolicking together without injury or discord. Among the sixty animals were eight doves, four owls, ten rats, two cats, two dogs, one hawk, three rabbits, one rooster, eight guinea pigs, one raccoon, two kavas, 
one Cuba rat, three anteaters, seven monkeys, two woodchucks, one opossum, one armadillo, and others unspecified. In Barnum's January 1846 letter, he instructed Hitchcock to advertise the happy family as an attraction he had engaged in England, although the content of the letter makes it plain this was not true, and to an astute visitor, the presence of a raccoon, a mammal native to North America, would raise suspicion about the veracity of that claim. In his autobiographies, Barnum says he purchased the attraction in Coventry, England, in the summer of 1844, and described it as a collection of 200 birds and animals for which he paid $2,500, and that he hired the proprietor to accompany it to America. More likely, the purchase occurred later, as there are other examples in the autobiographies in which Barnum's retelling of events does not align with the dates and sequences documented by letters. Like most attractions, the novelty and popularity of Barnum's Happy Family exhibit peaked and then waned over time. By 1867, when author Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, saw the exhibition in Barnum's Second American Museum, he was decidedly unimpressed, and even revolted by the behavior of the monkeys, who dominated the group. He observed they had pulled the fur and feathers from other animals, stole the food, and were boxing the rabbit's ears. He also noted that the alpha monkey had bitten off half the tail of his companion, who could no longer use it to hold itself in place or swing about proof that Barnum's original advice about mischievous monkeys was correct. Whether characterized as playful, mischievous, or vengeful, monkeys required special management to coexist with other species. In Clemens's view, the other animals were being bullied and pestered by the monkeys, and were anything but happy. They were subjugated, not content. One might argue that happy family creatures were at least well-fed, However, knowing what we do today about the care of animals, not only their physical needs, but their behaviors and emotional needs, can make it distressing to think of cages filled with animals who were incompatible in nature. John Austin and his mentee Henry Mayhew were exceptional for their time period in having great empathy for all kinds of mammals and birds, training them by first learning their habits through careful observation. But the vast majority of people would not have thought this way, and copycat happy family exhibits, of which there were others in London, were undoubtedly conceived only as short-term moneymakers, with little concern for the animal's well-being. Barnum's attitude toward animals is hard to pinpoint, but it seems to fall in between. He obviously intended for the happy family exhibit to be a draw for his museum, but he also appears to have had some degree of sensitivity in emphasizing the importance of good food, cleanliness, and the monitoring or nighttime isolation of species that were less trustworthy around prey. These were necessary investments to its success, of course, but it is conceivable that his attention to matters of animal care was above the norm for that time period. As is the case with many of the attractions Barnum is remembered for, the Happy Family exhibit was not his own invention, but a novel one that he transformed into a particularly memorable entertainment in part by promoting it in his inimitable style. You can read more about the original Happy Family exhibits of John Austin and the young man he mentored, Henry Mayhew, as described in Mayhew's own words in London Labor and the London Poor, Volume 3, Chapter 6, available online through Tufts University's digital library. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. 
Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.